If at any point throughout the broadcast you hear a topic you would like to discuss or feel you have a tidbit that you could contribute, please don't hesitate to call in. I would absolutely love it. It would make my day. How about you, Brandon? Would it make your day? I don't really care. Great! The number to call is 718-928-9RFB. Again, that's 718-928-9732. And you know what? Even if you just want to call in and say hello, or better yet, call in and say, You suck! Go ahead. It would be just as delightful. Now on with the show. Okay, so just a little housekeeping stuff before we get on to tonight's main topic. Uh, as you just heard, the call-in number here is 718-928-9RFB. That's 718-928-9732. You can also follow us on Twitter, The Land of the Bitter. We are at Next Best Radio, and by all means, give us a like on Facebook. That's where we post a lot of stuff um, following the shows. If we talk about something during a show or if we refer to something during a show, we'll usually post said thing or something about said thing on our Facebook page during or after the show. Uh, the Facebook page is facebook.com backslash NBT radio. Last but not least, we have some huge news for the show, and this is very exciting. The next best thing is finally and officially available as a podcast on iTunes. That is big news. That is a big deal for us. So, if you happen to miss one live broadcast, don't worry. In fact, you can miss every single live broadcast because moving forward, they're all going to be available on iTunes. All you need to do, you can find it on our Facebook page, as we just said. Or, better yet, you can go to the iTunes store, search under podcasts for the next best thing, hit search, there it is. Um, our logo is black and white lettering, top the next best thing. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Radio Free Brooklyn. Moving on up, moving on up. But uh, yes, so yes, I believe that's all the housekeeping we have to do for now. But let's get on to the big show, shall we? Tonight we're going to discuss and look into laughter. Okay, if you're listening to this show and you have a pulse, I would bet that that last laugh, if not all three of them, brought a smile to your face. And if it didn't, well, you're Satan. Now, that actually is what gave me the idea of doing this show tonight. I was, um, most people, whether it's a activity, a song, a sound, a food... Most people have something or other that they can turn to whenever they're feeling down or sad or depressed or anxious, and it'll always make them feel a lot or a little better. It'll, it'll always lift their spirits to a degree. Now, folks, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Speaking words of wisdom, let it be. <laughs> Just kidding. That was fun. No, but really... Um, there is, there are not a lot, but there are some things that do always bring a smile to my face. It's not going to make me feel better for the rest of the night, but it will momentarily make me smile. One of them is seeing small children get hit by cars. No, I'm just kidding. Good God, I'm just kidding. That's not even funny. Shame on me. No, but 
Actually, let me put it to you this way. If you've ever watched Inside the Actor's Studio, a great show, one thing that James Lipton always does with every guest towards the end of the interview is the questionnaire made famous by the French interviewer, Bernard Pivot of Apostrophe. We begin our classroom session, as always, with the questionnaire invented by my great hero, Bernard Pivot. What's your favorite word? And it goes on to ask similar questions. Now, I'm the kind of guy who always likes to be prepared, and so I've gone ahead and come up with answers to each of these questions for whenever I'm interviewed on that show. It'll happen. And because the questions tend to be kind of, you know, you know, unique and somewhat random, they require some thought. And yes, absolutely. One, however, did not. Whenever he, whenever I heard him ask, What sound or noise do you love? I knew exactly what my answer was because it's, I mean, for the past, I don't know, maybe 15 plus years, I've had one sound or noise that I've loved more than anything else. And, and to be perfectly honest, and I'm not being cheesy here, it's the sound of my mom's laugh. <laughs> It doesn't matter what kind of mood I'm in. I could be as angry as I've ever been, as depressed as I'll ever be. But when I hear my mom laugh with that hearty and just, I mean, so joyous laugh. I, I mean, honestly, I don't know what it is about it. But it just, it gets to me. And it doesn't just make me smile, but it makes me laugh as well. And it just makes me happy. In fact... Here's a little snippet of a recording I happened to catch last July when I was back in Kansas City. My mom and I were sitting together talking and, well, something made us laugh. I'm embarrassed to say what it is, but I'll tell you this much. It was an application I came across on my phone. Uh, you'll figure it out. Here's my mom and I. <laughs> Wing night stinger. <laughs> Ew, that was <laughs> Oh, that's these are getting bad. I like the V on the bed. You do that for real. <laughs> you do. <laughs> you know, the truth is, I don't find potty humor funny. Almost ever. I mean, really. But the it was the fact that it was making my mom react that way. It was just, I don't know. I don't. I, I again. I really can't explain it. I don't know why it happens, but it does. Whenever I hear my mom laugh like that, I'm just suddenly any any stressor or any you know anything on my mind melts away, and for a brief moment, if not more, I feel totally happy. And I wanted to know why. Why was that? Why does the sound of my mom's or anyone's laughter do that to me? Well, I took that question to somebody who studies acoustics. Love laughing. Hello. Hi. Really? There's somebody who does that? Yeah. I am Dr. Joanne Bakareski. I'm an associate professor of psychology at Vanderbilt University. She's from my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee. And I study the sounds that we make. She has collected over 30,000 laughs. Can we hear some? Probably, this is probably the biggest collection in the world. She's analyzed everyone on the computer and played me a few. Okay. Just little teeny scraps. I'll just go ahead and play this for yeah. you. Like this one? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, sorry, sorry. Did I play it one more time? 
It sounds yeah. hysterical. It was like an alien. <laughs> but every bit of that laugh, she thinks, has a secret evolutionary purpose. And she breaks it down for me. Starting with that first part of the laugh, the little breathy thing, which in her business she calls a glottal whistle. See, she's still got this glottal whistle thing going on here. A glottal so, whistle. What's yes. that again? It's the wheeze. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> This is just creating turbulence in her glottis. Mm. It's like there's a storm going on down there. Now, a lot of people do the wheeze yeah, when they, they laugh. Do. I they do. do. Why? It always happens at the beginning of a laugh. Always at the beginning, which makes her think. That subglottal whistle seems to really say, hey, pay attention to me, and then you get this wonderful <laughs> sound that follows. So the wheeze, she thinks, is like a laugher's gunshot to get you to listen up. Now, the sounds that follow, they jump around a lot in pitch. Which, again, she thinks has a purpose, considering when we talk, you know, uh, we, we keep it right here in the middle. I'm Linda Wertheimer. <laughs> <laughs> when we laugh, we go up and down. We leap crazy octaves and land on really, really high notes like this. This sound here, and it's like a mouse squeak. This note in pitch is actually higher than the highest note in that famously unsingable aria, Queen of the Night. Really? You know, this laugh has got so much going on in it. Acoustically extreme, that's what she calls it. Acoustically extreme laughter. Which means that it's hard for our our brains to process, and she's seen this on brain scans. We get a little jolt, a little when we hear a laugh that jumps pitches like that. 55 hertz up to 276 hertz in a heartbeat. So maybe the pitch jumps, maybe the wheeze. These sounds, they're not random, she would argue. They have specifically evolved to tweak us emotionally. Humans have the ability to produce a sound that makes other people feel good. And so if we can do that, then they're more likely to feel positively towards us and behave positively towards us. Because ultimately we want to shape their behavior towards us. What you're saying then is a laugh is a way of the laugher getting into the head of or under the skin of the other person. Maybe. Just maybe. Studies, in fact, have found that people laugh louder and more extremely around their boss. And over and over, Joanne has found that women tend to exaggerate their laughs when they're around men, men that they don't know. With a stranger male, she is um, laughing a lot, and she is producing acoustically extreme laughter. And you can interpret that in a lot of different ways. She interprets it as, as a safety so thing. The, the idea being that the male's inherently threatening, so you want to manipulate his emotional state so that he's positively disposed huh. towards her. But there's another way to sort of interpret mm-hmm. that, which is that you're essentially confirming the stereotype of the giggling girl. Yeah, um... The giggling girls have power. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I know it? All right, actually. So here's the truth. That, um, when my voice faded away and it went into that other show, that show is called Radio Lab. It's, um, it's on NPR. Our, our uh, branch of NPR here in New York City is WNYC. It's a great show hosted by Jed Ebenrod and Robert Krowich. I suggest if you liked that little clip, Go check out their show. It's amazing. It's really, truly um, innovative and awesome. And the link to the full episode from which we pulled that clip has already been posted on the Next Best Thing Facebook page. Look at us, efficient. Um, Truth be told, so that was very interesting. I do, I love knowing why I, you know, enjoy hearing my mom and other people laugh. And it's very interesting and that makes total sense. But really, more so than that, what I wanted to talk about tonight a few weeks ago, um, we had a guest in, David Bradley Eisenberg, a up-and-coming comic here in New York City. 
And there was a part in our interview where um, I asked him what kind of, you know, what kind of stand-up he, you know, primarily did. Was he more of a political comic, an observational comic, whatever? And it kind of, you know, he said he wasn't sure what I meant by that. And that got me thinking, you know, whatever, because in my mind, there has always been very specific types of stand-up. But the more I thought about it, the more it dawned on me that more contemporary comics, it all kind of blends together um, to a degree, but not entirely. And so I kind of wanted to break it down in my mind. And it does still exist to some degree. For example, you know, one type of comedy. So basically what I wanted to do is break down different types of funny and who fit those genres, if you will, that we know and see today. So one of the first that came to mind is satire. Satire, in my opinion, is one of the most difficult types of comedy because it has to be done really almost perfectly. It has to be done smartly. It has to have, it has to be written smartly. And it's all about, it's all about, I mean, it's just, it really takes a certain edge and a certain type of writing and delivery that has to be perfect, otherwise it just doesn't come off right. And there's truly, in my opinion, no one who was better at performing satire, who is at least alive today that I know of, than, better than Stephen Colbert. Um, he doesn't do it much anymore on his new show. When he took over for David Letterman, it kind of came to an end. But on his old show, The Colbert Report, he did it. That was the whole show. And it was so good, and I miss it so much. Um, I really do. In fact, last July, there was a brief, brief moment on one episode when he actually, it was a whole, the whole thing was that, you know, he was bringing his character back and he, you know, he came on riding his American flag scooter with his Captain America shield. And they even did the whole, and he did his whole, here's tonight's word. It was, it was glorious. Um, so here's a, a quick clip and it's not that quick. It's about three minutes long, but it's an example of it's just, honestly, it's not even the best example of satire from the Colbert Report, but I like it because, A, it features an interview, which I always thought was great, great, because here's the key aspect of satire. At no point are there any kind of jokes. That's the thing about satire, is it's delivered in a way in which you have to believe that the performer or performers are being completely and totally serious. That's what satire is. It's the use of, you know, irony, sarcasm, ridicule, or the like to basically expose, denounce, deride a type of behavior or folly or vice or whatever. And so that's what he does. And in any interview, the interviewee rarely, if ever, knew that he wasn't really being serious because he sounds totally serious. So here's him interviewing Maurice Sendak, the very famous children's author. Nation. Anybody who knows me knows that I don't like children or books or children's books. But I do respect the free market and children's books still sell. The latest literary trend is children's books by famous folks like John Travolta, Madonna, Terrell Owens. Well, folks, daddy wants in. I've got everything it takes. I'm a celebrity for advice. I turn to one of the giants of children's literature, Maurice Sendak. 
author of Where the Wild Things Are, Chicken Soup with Rice, and In the Night Kitchen, and his latest, Bumblardi. I highly recommend it unless you are Jewish. You can't read books about pork. Stick with the Velveteen Rabbi. I sat down with Mr. Sendak where the mild things are. Grim Colberry Tales with Maurice Sendak. Mr. Sendak, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, tell me about children's literature. Don't you think that by writing books for children, you're sending children the message that reading is important? Very much so. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about kids. I don't trust them. Is that true? They are just biding their time until we're gone, and then they get our stuff. That's really good. And they good. take our place. Uh-huh. That's an interesting point of view. Thank you. But not interesting to me, particularly. <laughs> there is something in this country that is so opposed to understanding the complexity of children. It's quite amazing. But what do you mean the complexity of children? Because well, children have it easy. They get driven every place. We feed them. We dress them. Newt Gingrich said it. Children don't have a work ethic. But Newt Gingrich is an idiot. A great renown. I'll give him that. He's a historian. Yes, but there is something so hopelessly gross and vile about him. It's hard to take him seriously, so let's not take him seriously. Well, let's agree to disagree. Sure. Okay. Why why write for children? I don't write for children. You don't? No. I write. And somebody says, that's for children. I didn't set out to make children happy or make life better for them or easier for them. Do you like them? I like them as few and far between as I do adults. Maybe a bit more because I really don't like adults. I don't like Let me just get that. Maurice Sendak children eh <laughs> All right, good. Didn't know that. New topic. Book signings. Dreadful. Really? You must have groupies. Yes, you do, but they don't mean anything. There are hot young moms coming up to you, <laughs> right? Where the wild milfs are. That would not affect me because I'm a gay man. Sorry, what? That would not affect me because I am a gay man. I think, I'm sorry, I must be mishearing you. I think you just said you're a gay man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why are you allowed to write children's books? You're not allowed to head Boy Scout troops. I would dream wanting to. But what is a game? All right. And the interview is on like that. They actually, first of all, it, it's kind of what's funny about that interview is that Marie Sendak is totally, especially, you know, after the very initial introductions and stuff, he's just kind of playing along. He doesn't care. He's an old man at that point. He's like, ah, whatever. I'm a gay man. And so it's great. And, and they kind of, they get along very well. He ends up, they, there's a part two to that interview in which they write, you know, he helps Stephen Colbert write a children's book. And I believe it's called something about a pole. But anyway, that children's book ended up getting published. They became, you know, friends. And when Maurice Sendak died a few years ago, uh, Stephen Colbert gave a very emotional tribute to him on the show. It was really awesome. So he is who I would look to for an example of modern-day satire. Al Franken also took a lot of pride in being a satirist as opposed to a comedian. He would often say on David Letterman's show, uh, I'm a satirist. You 
are a clown. So, there's a distinct difference between, you know, satirists and comedians. Satirists versus clowns. Moving right along here. Another type of comic that I think is pretty prominent nowadays would be a political comic. These, the people who come to mind would be Bill Maher. He's, he's the first and foremost who comes to mind. Bill Maher, Jon Stewart, George Carlin was. George Carlin was, but he talked about everything. He talked about life. He talked about family. He talked about politics. Uh, Stephen Colbert, Dennis Miller. Um, Dennis Miller is a good example of someone, a political comic, who is on the other end of the political, political spectrum. Bill Maher, Jon Stewart, Stephen Colbert, and even George Carlin to a degree all tended to be smart and, you know, progressive and inclusive and smart. Dennis Miller, he's a smart guy, sure, you know, whatever, but um, he's more Republican. Uh, so, yeah, but political humor is pretty self-explanatory. Um, it's people who focus on politics, current events, and make jokes about them. Here's Bill Maher. The FBI says Americans should... I should point out, this was right before the election. So keep that in mind. The FBI says Americans should look out for terror attacks on Monday. They said they would do it, but they're so busy with Hillary's emails <laughs> from 2009. You know, that... A terrorist attack, that would be such a nightmare scenario, to watch terrorists ruin our election after all the work Russia has put into doing that. <laughs> I mean, this is... I know this is a comedy show, and I'm going to try to keep it on that level, but it's not fucking funny. There is a slow-moving right-wing coup going on. Media, do your fucking job. Report <laughs> The, the FBI has become politicized. They call, they're calling it Trumplandia. There's a faction in it that is politicized and trying to sabotage Hillary's campaign because they're convinced that she is the devil. Now, is it really... And they were successful. Really surprising that guys in a building named after J. Edgar Hoover have issues with women? <laughs> Perhaps not. But we have reached peak insanity here. The Russians are creating fake documents to discredit the Hillary campaign, and the Trump campaign tweets them out as if they are real. Republicans are trying to elect a sexually assaulting psychopath who is, if not a Russian agent, unwittingly working as one. And people in America are saying, well, it's better than Hillary. No, it's fucking not. All right, so that's that's a good... See... He usually doesn't get that um, serious. I mean, serious. But that's the thing. That's the thing about political humor is that it's it's all serious. He's making jokes, but he's not kidding. In terms of everything he said there, you know, when I say he doesn't get that serious, I mean, he doesn't say stuff like, you know, this is a comedy show, but it's really not fucking funny. He doesn't usually do that. He doesn't usually need to do that. It was pretty dire at that point, the election, as we can remember. And he was totally right. He was completely right, and we know how it turned out. So, But political comics have a point of view, and they basically are satirists in the sense that they are pointing out how absurd and they're basically submitting their counterparts to scorn and ridicule, which they, when they deserve it, hey, they deserve it. Moving right along, so besides political humor and satirists, which, by the way, the two can walk hand in hand, and they do it very well, 
if it, they do it very well, Stephen Colbert. There's also the Insult comic. Now, this one's a little trickier. Um, insult comics nowadays are people like Don Rickles, Lisa Lampanelli, Jeff Ross, Triumph, the Insult comic dog. Out of the people I just named, there's two of them that I like, one of them that I really like. When I say Don Rickles, I don't, I don't, I like Don Rickles for his historical value. I like Don Rickles for the fact that he's like, how old is Don Rickles? Let's see. I like the fact that Don Rickles is at least 195 years old and he is still performing. Okay, excuse me. He is 90. He's 90. He's going to be 91 in May and he's still on the road. He's still doing his stand-up. That's remarkable. So that alone is worth, was really worth, is worth a lot of praise. <laughs> and he's gotten a lot of praise. But um, Lisa Lambanelli, here's the thing. He, I, Don Rickles was just on the Today Show a few days ago. And he, and I don't watch that show, so someone had to send me the clip. But he spoke about how the way, the key to being a successful insult comic is you have to do it with not a hint of hate, vitriol, or malice in your heart. If you do it with any hate, vitriol, or malice in your heart, it comes off completely differently. People know it, and it's just not very funny, and it tends to be a little uncomfortable. I think that is the smartest, one of the smartest things I've heard a comic say, because it's so true. Lisa Lampanelli, she's really funny. She's really smart. I hate her stand-up act so much because she, there's too much truth to it. She really means some of these insults. I mean, she looks at her stand-up as a way to get back at people. And I don't think that's good. I don't think that's funny. And the reason I kind of walked around, you know, my opinion on Don Rickles is because a lot of times I don't think he's that funny either. But when he's on, he's on. Here's a quick cup. Here's a quick, excuse me, a quick cut of an appearance of his on Letterman that I thought, thought was really funny. And the best part is it's not really him doing his stand-up act. It's just the way he talked while he knew he was on stage. They love you, Don. What a night, what a night, what a oh. crowd. Oh, God, I wish I was someplace else. <laughs> hey, Listen, welcome. before you say yeah. anything. Mm -hmm. Sure. Congratulations on the Johnny Carson Award. Thank you very much. I'm very, and I happen to be one of the judges. Mm -hmm. ah. Oh, great. And I can't lie. I didn't vote for you. Oh. <laughs> I don't think you were that great. Yeah, well, I don't know how to be honest. I think you're right. I kind of agree no, with that. I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, thank you. That's very nice. Now listen. I care, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know we were, were just talking By about... By the way, Paul, that was great. The band's weak, but you were great. Thank you. Oh. No, they're okay. He means it with love. They're yeah. okay. Yes, we know. <laughs> Shut up, Paul. What? <laughs> No, you guys are great. I, I, I rib you, but the, I don't know who picks out your wardrobe, but the guy in the beret better get back to Vietnam. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you, Don. <laughs> Vietnam? What the hell is that guy? I don't know. I know. I he, he looks like a lost rabbi playing yeah. a drum. Hello. Oh, the lost rabbi. I have a, a question for you. Yeah, yeah. jump in. This All is right, your I'm show. Now, the question I have for Now, this is really where I should end the clip. But I have to keep going because this next part to me is so hilarious because Don Rickles genuinely has no clue what the hell Dave is talking about. You trouble with the luggage? Trouble with the luggage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wrong. He, <laughs> he just loves that line. Trouble with the luggage. I remember uh, seeing your act uh, at the, I think, the Desert Inn. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, when you yeah. had the baseball cap, the shorts, that's and sneakers. Right. Yeah, I thought right. you were at the beach. <laughs>
came but, in like a derelict. I swear to God, that's the way he dressed when he came in the dressing room. But at some point uh, on uh, during your act, a fellow comes out on stage, yeah. and you say to him, "Trouble with the luggage." It's very funny. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are a lot of clinics here in New York. Yeah, no. <laughs> Truly, he had no clue what Dave was talking about. Um, <laughs> his face is just like, what? Should I? What? Should I know what he's talking about? I don't know what he's talking about. I'm old. Um, okay, so anywho, that's Don Rickles. He's the king of the insult comedy. Here's a here's here's um. Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, who is performed and created by Robert Smigel, who I think is truly hilarious. Never do I feel uncomfortable. Never is there any sense of being, you know, mean or whatever, because he's a character. He's a little dog. Here's a few minutes of him <laughs> when he went down to Occupy Wall Street, and um, he was interviewing people at Occupy Wall Street. Here we go. Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. Occupy Wall Street. Here at East Infection Park on the corner of Hertz When IP Boulevard, we are out here with a group of people who are protesting our country's history of allowing corporate greed to go unpunished. And as you can see from the crowd, many here are also protesting our country's long history of proper hygiene. This protest is historic, with many important issues at stake, and yet the mainstream media will make sure that the only coverage you'll see is this guy. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to show you this guy and make fun of him right to his face. We need to wake up to our abuse of the planet in pursuit of corporate interests, correct? Thank you. I'm with you, man, and I loved you in the Scream movies, by the way. I did, I did. You know, I wear the same mask when I go down on Joy Behar. Okay. This is an important thing, and I want you to have your say. So, go ahead. What's your cause besides wanting more M&Ms in trail mix? <laughs> Look at these two kids. You guys are married? Where did you register? At Burning Man? <laughs> All right, we've got the drum circle here, and this is very exciting. I'm talking to... Uh, Gabriel. Gabriel from the drum circle. What would a protest be without the drum circle? Besides bearable. I just want to show you a few other options that you might consider to a drum circle in case you don't want to annoy people. For example, during the Arab Spring in Tunisia, they did a saxophone rectangle, and then during the civil rights marches in the 60s, they employed a piano parallelogram, and then this was in Kent State, the triangle triangle. Here's how you can be useful to me, okay? I need you to help me with my jokes. Would you help me? The police, the secret is not to blink, okay? Check it out. Keep going. See? Nothing. Nothing. Whoa. Anybody here ever uh, deal with pepper spray before? Yeah, who's kept, please? You're kidding me? I... <laughs> Like you've never dealt with pepper spray. That's how every one of his dates ends. That's how he knows the date is over. This is perfect. All right. So, yeah, that's my... See, now that's funnier to me because, A, it's really kind of on the spot. B, it's about, you know, he's making fun of people that, hey, a lot of us could make fun of. And, you know, it's just funny because, again, it's a little dog with a cigar. It's, you know, there's no... Ma 
I don't know. It just is way less. It kind of, I don't know. It just kind of makes it all, everything's fair game. So that's insult comedy. Now, okay, a lot of people, and this is kind of another thing that kind of made me want to talk about this a little bit. Um, I was listening to some sports talk radio the other day, and they were talking, this was just totally a side comment. They threw it out there. They referred to Kathy Griffin, and one of the hosts goes, yeah, you know, she's she's an insult comic. I wouldn't, I even, see, that's funny. I would never consider her an insult comic because she doesn't insult. First of all, insult comics to me are really, you know, they'll look at a crowd and they'll kind of roast people one by one face to face. She never does that. She will never speak about someone who's actually in the room. She tells A, she tells stories about her life and B, again, nobody's going to be talked about if they're actually in the room. Here's an example of her talking. She's telling a story about her experience on Hollywood Squares. And you tell me if you think this is an insult comic. Like a typical offer for me is to do um, a little show I like to call Hollywood Squares. Oh, yeah. I'm no stranger to the squares. I've spent the whole day in a square next to Lorenzo Lamas and said, thanks for the gig. All right. Okay. So you're not going to believe who I was on Hollywood Squares with. Little Richard. I get, in, I get in my square, right, and I'm next to Little Richard, who, God love him, he's an icon. I respect him tremendously. He's very talented. What a freak. All right. He's got, like, the tattooed lip liner and the mustache is tattooed on, and he's now just wearing a hooker wig. And he's dressed all sparkly. And, you know, I mean, you know, he's a showman. Okay, we all know that. So anyway... I sit next to him and I'm thinking, okay, I'm next to little Richard all day. What are we going to talk about? So I decided to make conversation and we talked about going on the road and all that stuff. And then the thing that was really great about little Richard is he peppers conversations with the woo like that. Like you, you could say to him, so little Richard, you still go on the road? And he'd be like, ooh, child, I get, I get in that car and I woo, I drive to the next gig and woo, and I do my performances and I woo like that. And it's a little disarming because you don't know if you're supposed to woo back or if it's his woo time or so. Oh, I forgot to tell you this. Okay. So, so guess who else is on the show? Another square triumph, the insult comic dog. This was a great day. And you know, you know the character, right? He's like this puppet. It's great. And he'll do stuff like he'll go to the Video Music Awards and he'll like shout at Christina Aguilera, you know, I guess heaven is missing a hooker, you know, like, I just think it's really, really funny. So anyway, Triumph decides to really go for Little Richard. So no matter what question Triumph gets, he makes it about Little Richard. All right, so like they'll, they'll ask Triumph, you know, a question and Triumph will say, um, well, I do not know who invented that. Why don't you ask Little Richard? He invented rock and roll and all of the Beatles and the Beach Boys, according to him. Like that, right? <laughs> so, Little Richard is next to me, and he's starting to get really pissed. And he starts going like this. Who that dog? Who that dog? He's getting, like, upset, right? And then Triumph gets another question, and Triumph says, I do not know, because like Little Richard, I poop on both sides of the fence. <laughs> Who that dog? Who that dog? Who that dog? Yeah, so I don't think that's... In- see, that's not insult comedy. That's more... I mean, I can see, I guess, how they thought that to a degree, but really that's more just kind of storytelling and... 
I guess, combination of storytelling and observational, which is a great segue. It leads me to our last form of stand-up comedy of the night, and that's my favorite, observational humor. Now, that's the one that I asked David Bradley Eisenberg about and kind of threw him off a little bit because I, I admit that that is kind of a very general term, but basically what it is is observational is kind of, it's a form of comedy that's basically just based on commonplace aspects of everyday life. It's one of the main, you know, types of stand-up, but it's like in an, an observational comic will basically in their act, they'll talk about observations that they've had about stuff from the backwaters of life and everyday phenomenon that is rarely noticed or discussed, but that we can all relate to. Now, nowadays, because there's so many comedians out there, that might be harder to come by, something that, you know, no one's talked about or something that no one's talked about. But, you know, it's obviously far from impossible. Um, I think, too, this is interesting because a lot of people nowadays know Ellen DeGeneres for strictly her daytime talk show. Um, which makes sense, you know, obviously that's her, her life now and it's very successful. I never watched that show ever. In fact, I kind of, you know, between you and me, I kind of hate that show because A, I'm not a big daytime talk show person. B, I can be, because I love Ellen DeGeneres. I think she's hilarious and I can tell that she writes nothing from that show. Her monologue is totally written by other people, et cetera, et cetera. Don't like that. And here's the big thing. I hate that stupid ass dancing. Not even from her. I don't care. Like in the beginning, do your dance, shake it up, whatever you want to do. But when you make the guests do it, oh my God, that makes my skin crawl. And I just think to myself, if I were a guest on a talk show and they were like, all right, my first guest, please welcome John Lerner. And then I walked out and everyone was like expecting me to dance. I would smile, turn around, and walk off and never come back. It's like, dance, monkey, dance. Do little party tricks. I, not, no, not into that. And, and and she did, there was this episode where Meryl Streep was on it, and like, she made her just play these games where it was like, basically stand up and make a fool of yourself. I don't like that stuff. But, but what I'm trying to say is, I love Ellen. And that's true. I think Ellen is one of the most hilarious stand-ups I've ever seen. She has two stand-up specials. One is called The Beginning. One is called Here and Now. It's all observational comedy, and I think it's brilliant. What's great about this, you know, you think about it, you have a room full of people. Everybody is so different, and we're all here for different reasons. Everybody has a different story. Some people are longtime fans and bought their tickets the day they went on sale, and I'm always appreciative. There they are, five of them. And yet, look at the seats they get. That's a shame. Some of you had to get babysitters, especially if you have kids. Some people, maybe you're in a bad mood. Maybe you had a fight with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife or your lover or your partner or your roommate or your... Niece, the point is... You're in a bad mood, and now I'm going to have to work even harder to make you laugh all because you have to have things your way and you won't back down. But that's all right, because we're all here, and with all of our differences, we all have one thing in common. We're all gay. Now there are people out there going, do they think we're gay because we're here? Do we look gay? 
I told you this would happen. We're not going to understand a word of this. No, that's, that's my one obligatory gay reference. I have to say something gay, otherwise some people might leave here tonight going, she didn't do anything gay. She's not our leader. What happened to our leader? Seriously, though, if you're here, you're probably gay. <laughs> now, I played that clip for a very specific reason. She says that's my one obligatory gay reference, and she means it. That's the one gay joke she makes all night. Because here's the thing, folks. The reason I love Ellen's stand-up so much is because it is so universally funny. A lot of times, comics will get, well, you know, and they do this on purpose. It's not a mistake, but a lot of times they'll kind of, you know, they'll write... Okay, here, let me put it this way. Um, I've seen a lot of really overweight comics do their entire acts about how, how fat they are. They gotta live life fat. You know, hey, life for me as a fat person is this and that and that and this. And the whole act is about being fat. Okay, and sometimes it's very, very funny. I've seen, like, Margaret Cho, she, a huge part of her act is about um, being growing up Asian American. And she does this whole thing. She does an impression of her mom, which is hysterical. But it is, you know, Asian. It's, you know, kind of an, it's about herself and her um, ethnicity and how she grew up. Chris Rock, one of the best stand-ups alive, he, in his earlier days, a lot of his early specials were, I think one's called Bigger and Blacker. I thought that a lot of that was about being black, whether it was, you know, his, how he grew up and stuff like that. And that makes total sense. It's your experience. But it does kind of, it's more focused on a certain group. Ellen, it never is like that. She that like that's the only joke she makes about being gay from in either special. There is no silence. There's just constant noise all the time, and people are talking all the time. And even with all the talking, there's no communication. We're not. And even when we say how are you, we don't mean how are you. We don't care. Just give us a fine or a good, a one-syllable answer, and move along. <laughs> and, and don't even say pretty good. That's a follow-up question. Pretty good. Something happened. I don't have time. To, but we learn, we're conditioned not to engage in full conversation, you know, because as soon as you start to talk to somebody, somebody's cell phone's going to go off immediately. God, they got rid of those obnoxious rings, huh? <laughs> and we certainly don't have full conversations on cell phones, you know. Usually the reception is so bad, but it's only bad on your side. The person talking to you has no clue. They're just rambling on and on. You've got your finger jammed in your ear. You're shushing people on the street. You're ducked behind a dumpster so you can hear about your friend's new haircut. What about the bangs? Are they shorter? Are the bangs shorter? Yeah, I wish she'd go back to doing stand-up touring. Um, one of the most prolific stand-up comedians, really of all time, and he was he was a both observational, political, kind of professorial, is the great the late great George Carlin. Now, you wouldn't know it from some of the things I've said over the years, but I like people. <laughs> I do. 
I like people, but I like them in short bursts. I don't like people for extended periods of time. I'm all right with them for a little while, but once you get up past around minute, minute and a half, I gotta get the fuck out of there. Everyone wants to tell you their stupid bullshit. And a lot of them don't know when to stop talking. You ever run into that guy? Doesn't know when to stop talking, just continues running at the mouth like verbal diarrhea. Don't know when the conversation's over. Stupid, trivial shit you don't care anything about. Things you're not even remotely interested in. Did I tell you about my mom and dad? Well, my mom and dad went on vacation down to Mammoth Cave, Kentucky. This is about six years ago, I think. Seemed like it was six, about six years, years ago. Six or seven, possibly seven, could be. Yeah. Somewhere in there, six, seven, more than six, less than seven. Let's call it six and a half. So my mom and dad went on vacation to Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, and my dad found a big rock. What he thought was a big rock, turns out it was a dinosaur turd. A petrified dinosaur turd, 27-pounder. You know, now that I think of it, it might have been eight years ago. That would have been close to Y2K, wouldn't it? Remember Y2K? Whatever happened? Everybody's all worried about that. Nothing ever happened. <laughs> Big fuss. Nothing ever happened. You know? God, that's strange, you know? The one thing about George Carlin is no matter what special you watch, no matter what year it was made, it is so amazingly relevant. Now, all of this stupid bullshit that children have been so crippled by has grown out of something called the self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement began in 1970, and I'm happy to say it has been a complete failure. <laughs> because studies have repeatedly shown that having high self-esteem does not improve grades, does not improve career achievement, it does not even lower the use of alcohol, and most certainly does not reduce the incidence of violence of any sort. Because as it turns out, extremely aggressive, violent people think very highly of themselves. <laughs> Imagine that, sociopaths have high self-esteem. <laughs> oh, what a thunk, huh? The self-esteem movement revolved around a single notion. The idea, the single idea, that every child is special. Boy, they said it over and over and over, as if to convince themselves, every child is special. And I kept saying, fuck you. <laughs> every child is clearly not special. <laughs> Did you ever look at one of them? Don't take a good close look at one of these fucking kids. They're goofy. They're fucking goofy looking. They're too small. They're way too fucking small. They're All right, so you get the point. George Carlin's a master. If you can go, if you can see any of his specials, I'm sure almost all, if not all, of them are available on YouTube. Same with who else have we talked about? Stephen Colbert doesn't do stand-up, but he now hosts The Late Show. David Letterman's old show. Um, Bill Maher has a ton of stand-up specials. He also hosts Real Time on HBO. Don Rickles has tons of stand-up. Lisa Lampanelli, Kathy Griffin has a bajillion stand-up specials. Triumph the Insult Comic Dog is frequently on Conan O'Brien's show. 
and many others. We're going to, so that's the type of funny. That's satire, political humor, insult comics, and observational. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to wrap it up for the night, folks. Wrap it on up. In just a minute. Okay. So, the reason I played that song called Hey Kansas City by David George and a... What? Hello! And a... Moving right along. Pardon me, folks. And a crooked mile is because the Kansas City Chiefs will be playing the Pittsburgh Steelers this coming Sunday in the AFC Divisional Round. I don't know if you care, but I'm asking you to care because, hey... My Chiefs haven't been to the Super Bowl since way before I ever existed. They were in Super Bowl One. They won Super Bowl Four. 
and they've never been back ever since. I think that was in 1970 that that took place. So now that the New York football giants have been eliminated by the Green Bay Packers, let's all band together and root for the Chiefs, shall we? Hell yes. They play Sunday at 105, and at Arrowhead Stadium, they play Ben Roethlisberger and the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I'm asking for your support because, hey, why the hell not? All right, folks, this has been The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. It's been a great show. I'm glad, and I appreciate you listening. Um, As I said in the middle of the show, we are now available as a podcast. Just go to iTunes, search for The Next Best Thing, subscribe, download, listen, love it, do it at your own leisure, skip ahead, do whatever you want to do. That's the beauty of podcasts. Um, If you would, if you're so inclined, follow us on Twitter. We are at Next Best Radio, and please, most importantly, give us a like on Facebook. You'll find all you'll find a lot of great and important and fun info there. Facebook.com slash NBT radio. I'm Jonathan B. Lerner, your host every Monday night from ten to midnight here on Radio Free Brooklyn. And stay warm for the love of God. It's bitter cold outside. We'll see you next week, folks. Until then, stay happy, stay healthy, and much love. Keep